This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Section 4 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899 by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 4. The Diet of Borgo. On March 13th, Governor Sprinkporten, in the name of the Tsar and Grand Duke, called on the estates to assemble, proclamation being made in old Swedish fashion by heralds and trumpeteers. As the Swedish reckoning is by the new style, and the Russian by the old, this March 13th was really Saturday the 25th, according to our calculation. When the estates were constituted and the mandates of the members verified, it was seen that there was not a large attendance. The nobles, with their marshal, Baron de Geer, numbered 70. The clergy, under the presidency of Tengstrom, Bishop of Orbor, only 8. And the burghers and peasants, each under their talman, or speaker, were 19 and 30, respectively. On Monday, March 15th, 27th, the Tsar made his entry into Borgo, and on the same night, in council with the Governor-General, with Speransky, his Finnish secretary, and with Romjansov, his foreign secretary, he signed the Act of Assurance, which is Finland's Magna Carta. The solemn and formal promulgation of this Act did not, however, take place till two days later, on the following day, March 16th, 28th, after attending service at the cathedral, where the bishop preached from a text selected by his majesty, the Tsar in state procession proceeded to the high school, where he formally opened the diet, all the four estates, for want of better accommodation, meeting on the occasion in one of the classrooms. The Tsar's throne speech is an excellent specimen of his emotional oratory. He must have spent many hours in polishing every sentence with that indefatigable lead pencil which has left so many traces on the state documents of the period. Monsieur Auden, in his examination of those variations of phraseology which so much trouble his mind, and which he attributes to the machinations of the Swedish-speaking Finns, who in that unknown tongue took all sorts of liberties with His Majesty's words, lays stress on the passage in which, in the Russian original of the Act of Assurance, the constitutions of Finland are spoken of, whilst in the Swedish official translation, the singular is used. It will be seen that in the second paragraph of his speech, which is reproduced below in the original French, with no opening left for Swedish mistranslation, the Tsar himself uses the word in the singular. Par les décrets de la Providence, appelés à gouverner un peuple bon et loyal, j'ai désiré voir ces représentants réunis autour de moi. J'ai désiré vous voir pour vous donner une nouvelle preuve de mes intentions pour le bien de votre patrie. J'ai promis de maintenir votre constitution, vos lois fondamentales. Votre réunion ici vous vous garantit ma promesse. 
Cette réunion fera époque dans votre existence politique. Elle est destinée à fermer le nœud qui vous attache au nouvel ordre des choses, à compléter les droits que l'essor de la guerre m'a déférés par des droits plus chers à mon cœur, plus conformes à mes principes, ceux que donnent les sentiments de l'amour et de l'affection. Je vous ferai connaître mes dispositions sur les objets de votre assemblée. Vous irez très facilement l'esprit qui me les a inspirés. Que l'amour de la patrie, l'amour de l'ordre et une harmonie inaltérable dans vos vues soient l'âme de vos délibérations, et la bénédiction du ciel viendra descendre sur vous pour diriger, pour éclairer vos travaux. It will be noted that the Tsar speaks in the past tense when he refers to his pledge to maintain the Finnish constitution, although the assurance was not publicly uttered until the following day. The reason is no doubt that, as we have said, the document had been approved and signed by him on the previous night, and the speech was, in its author's mind, a kind of oratorical appendix to it. For the great ceremonial of the following day, of which a painted representation hangs in the Senate House at Helsingfords, no schoolroom or hall in the so-called palace would suffice. The whole ceremonial was elaborately drawn up under Alexander's personal direction, and signed with his approval. The Cathedral of Borga was chosen, the sanctuary of the Supreme Being, as he afterwards called it, as the place where a Tsar of Russia should for the first time solemnly pledge himself and his successors to maintain a constitutional government in one of the lands under his sceptre, and where the representatives of his new subjects, having heard the pledge, should in return take the oath of homage to their Grand Duke. And as if Alexander foresaw that one day there might be a Monsieur Auden, who would deny that a Tsar could possibly pledge himself to a constitution in the singular, the order of the ceremony, written under his direction in French, and not in Swedish, and formally approved by him, describes the ceremony thus. Après quoi le gouverneur général déclarera que sa majesté impériale a daigné confirmer solennellement la constitution de la Finlande en la sanctionnant de sa signature. Il lira à haute voix l'acte de confirmation et le remettra au maréchal de la noblesse. On the morning of March 17th, 29th, the imperial heralds again made their appearance in the quiet streets of Borgo, and the estates were summoned to the cathedral to hear the Tsar's pledge, and to do homage. All being assembled, the Tsar entered, and took his seat on a throne specially prepared for the occasion, and adorned with the golden lion of Finland. Here there was a certain alteration in the procedure. The original order of the ceremony was that the emperor, seated on the throne, should deliver a speech that the estate should then, in order, take the oath of fealty, and that, finally, the governor should read the act of assurance. It does not seem to be recorded anywhere that the estates objected to this arrangement, or required the Tsar to first pledge himself to Finland, but for some reason the order of events was reversed. The act of assurance came first, then the oath of fealty, and finally the speech, and that the alteration was not decided on suddenly is shown by the fact that, from the draft of the speech which still exists in the archives, with the Tsar's pencil corrections, it is clear that it was intended to follow the taking of the oath. 
the act of assurance from the official swedish text read to the estates in borga cathedral by the governor-general for and in the presence of the czar runs as follows we alexander the first by the grace of god emperor and autocrat of all the russias etc etc do make known that providence having placed us in possession of the grand duchy of finland we have desired hereby to confirm and ratify the religion and fundamental laws of the land as well as the privileges and rights which each class in the said grand duchy in particular and all the inhabitants in general be their position high or low have hitherto enjoyed according to the constitution we promise to maintain all these benefits and laws firm and unshakable in their full force in confirmation whereof we have signed this act of assurance with our own hand given in borga march fifteenth twenty seventh eighteen o nine alexander this being read in swedish and the russian original being handed to the marshal of the nobles as representative of all the estates that official who had already been sworn as speaker of his order and all the speakers in succession took an oath to have and to consider as their lawful authority the great puissant prince and lord alexander i emperor and autocrat of all the russias and grand duke of finland and to keep inviolable the fundamental laws and constitution of the land such as they are now adopted and in force the czar who had hitherto remained silent then spoke as follows governor springporten translating into swedish je reçois avec sensibilité les serments de fidélité que les habitants de la finlande viennent de me prêter par l'organe de leurs représentants les liens qui m'unissent à eux affermis par ce mouvement spontané de leur affection consacré par cet acte solennel en devient plus cher à mon cœur plus conforme à mes principes en leur promettant de maintenir leur religion leur loi fondamentale j'ai voulu leur montrer le prix que j'attache au sentiment de la confiance et de l'amour j'implore l'être tout-puissant de m'accorder sa force et sa lumière pour gouverner cette nation respectable d'après ses lois et sa justice divine a herald then made the proclamation and the solemn ceremony ended with the prayers and the singing of te deum alexander remained a few more days in finland where he had already won all the hearts by his frank and straightforward demeanour and the thoroughness with which he accepted the novel circumstances in which he found himself as a constitutional monarch the estates gave a grand ball in his honour and he in turn invited the members to dinner he also visited orbor where he was received with even greater enthusiasm by the authorities and by the university on his return to borgo and before leaving finland he issued in french the following manifesto march twenty third april fourth which is the concluding document of this important series of constitutional acts nous alexandre premier empereur et autres cratères de toutes les russies etc etc grand duc de finlande etc etc 
ayant renié les États de la Finlande en une diète générale et reçu leur serment de fidélité, nous avons voulu à cette occasion, par un acte solennel, émaner en leur présence et proclamer dans le sanctuaire des lettres suprêmes, confirmer et assurer le maintien de la religion, des lois fondamentales, les droits et les privilèges dont chaque État en particulier et tous les habitants de la Finlande en général ont joui jusqu'à présent. En faisant promulguer cet acte par ses présentes, nous croyons devoir instruire en même temps nos fidèles sujets de Finlande, qu'en nous conformant à l'usage antique et révéré de ce pays, nous regardons les serments de fidélité prêtés par les États en général et par les députés des paysans en particulier en leur nom et en celui de leurs commettants, de leurs mouvements propres et spontanés, comme bons et obligatoires pour tous les habitants de la Finlande. Intimement persuadés que ce peuple bon et loyal conservera jamais pour nous et pour nos successeurs les mêmes sentiments de fidélité et d'attachement inviolable qui l'ont toujours distingué, nous nous attacherons à lui donner avec l'aide de Dieu de preuves continuelles de nos soins assidus et paternels pour son bonheur et sa prospérité. À Borgo, ce 23 mars 1809. Alexandre. By special imperial command, this manifesto was ordered to be translated into Swedish and Finnish, and read in all the churches in Finland, along with the Act of Assurance of March 17th. And these two documents have ever since kept their place side by side on the walls of every church from the Gulf of Finland to the frozen north. For ninety years they have been pointed out by father to son as Russia's word of honour to Finland, and they are regarded, or were regarded until the proclamation of February 15, 1899 rendered them worthless, as the very foundation of the constitutional existence of Finland, placed by them in the rank of nations under the empire of its own laws. It is against these imperial assurances, against this solemn compact deliberately entered into by Alexander, and renewed by each of his successors, that the whole force of the Russian newspaper criticism, with one or two honourable exceptions, has been directed for some ten years. Denunciation, ridicule and misrepresentation have been employed in order to prove that the Finns are impudent impostors when they claim to have a constitution. It is sufficient to ask any intelligent European or American reader, regardless of his previous prejudices, to examine this series of documents of indisputable validity, and to say whether in all history, or any place from Runnymede to Philadelphia, there is a clearer or more emphatic assertion of constitutional liberty and self-government than was accepted and confirmed at Borgo in 1809. One is almost ashamed to discuss the pretensions that have recently been so laboriously manufactured in Russia against all this. Writers who base a grave constitutional argument on a discrepancy between sujet and habitant, or between constitution and constitutions, when, as a matter of fact, both words are used differently in the documents before them, or who assert that when Alexander promised to maintain your religion, he meant my religion, and when he said your country, he meant my country. 
can have little respect for the intelligence of their readers, but I will endeavour to indicate the more plausible grounds on which objection is raised. And first, as regards the act itself, the cornerstone of the whole, Monsieur Auden points out quite correctly that there are discrepancies between the Swedish document which was read to the estates and officially promulgated, and the Russian document which was signed by the emperor. If there were any real difference between the two, and if they stood alone and unexplained by the surrounding circumstances, it might be an interesting subject for academic controversy to decide whether the Finnish people, as parties to a contract, were bound by the document which was officially promulgated to them, and which alone they accepted, or by that which the Tsar signed, and which he alone intended them to accept. We have had in England kings who did not understand our language. George I had no English, and Walpole, as we know, managed him with good punch and bad Latin. And it is more than possible that, what with the Latin and what with the punch, George I had not at all times a precise idea of the British constitution or of the significance of the documents which he signed. But it has not been suggested that the badness of Walpole's Latin had any more effect on the validity of those documents than the goodness of the punch, or that the Elector of Hanover was absolved from the obligations imposed by the English coronation oath because he thought that it meant something else in German. Nor is the act of settlement invalid because George was not able to read it, and the document by which he and his successors are bound, and in virtue of which they occupy the throne, was the English version understood and accepted by the nation, and not the possibly inaccurate, Latin version in which it was explained to the king. But there is, happily, no necessity to pursue this point, for there is not, as a matter of fact, the slightest essential difference between the documents. Let us take Monsieur Auden's points in order. In the second paragraph, where the Tsar expresses his desire to confirm and ratify the religion and fundamental laws, the Russian version is that he desires anew to confirm and ratify, etc. The omission of this word indicates, it seems, a crafty intention on the part of the Finns to ignore all that had gone before, and so magnify the importance of this one document. This is somewhat obscure, for why should the Finns wish to ignore on the Wednesday the Tsar's French speech by which they had been so profoundly moved and gratified on the Tuesday, is it not more reasonable to presume that the discrepancy is due simply to Alexander's desire for accuracy, and to his habit of verbally polishing his public utterances? As we have seen, he had in his opening speech spoken in the past tense of his constitutional pledge, although the pledge was not publicly made until the following day. Similarly, when the wording of the assurances was under consideration on the Saturday, there was no utterance, so far as the Diet was concerned, to which the Anew could refer, for the Tsar had not yet addressed the Diet, although he had given assurances, to Baron Mannerheim and the deputation in St. Petersburg. Is it not probable that the word was added by the Tsar himself, in the Russian version, when he recollected that its public announcement would, in order of time, follow the opening speech, and that, by oversight, the alteration was not at the same time made in the Swedish translation. 
At any rate, we may be sure that if the case had been reversed, and if the anew had been found in the Swedish and not in the Russian, Monsieur Auden would have discovered in that fact an equally convincing proof of Finnish duplicity. In the next case, it is the Swedish version that is redundant. The Russian text confirms the religion and fundamental laws, as well as the privileges and rights which each class in the said Grand Duchy had enjoyed under Swedish rule. In the Swedish version, as we have seen, the words of the land follow the word laws. It is difficult to see the vital difference that is supposed to exist between the religion and laws of a land and those of the people who live in it. Monsieur Auden's third grievance is that while the Russian version speaks of subjects, the Swedish version speaks of inhabitants. Is Monsieur Auden aware that in the draft of the speech with which the Emperor was to close the day's proceedings, he had, with his own hand, struck out the word sujet and replaced it with habitant, and that, in his final manifesto issued to the Diet in the following week, he used the two words indifferently, habitant occurring twice and sujet once. Like the careful stylist he was, the pupil of La Harpe and the friend of Madame de Stal liked to vary his phraseology when he could do so without in any way altering the sense. Next, and this has made a mighty noise in the Russian press, these conspirators against the sacred principle of autocracy make the Tsar speak in Swedish of the constitution of Finland, whereas the Russian word constitutium is in the plural. The singular, it seems, means a thing which no good Russian could approve of, whilst the plural simply means ordinary civil laws and regulations. This blunder, says M. Orden gravely, has fatally influenced the political relations between Finland and Russia. But the Tsar himself does not support Monsieur Auden, for in numerous documents in which the Swedish translators had no hand, and notably in his opening speech, in which, as we have seen, he refers back to the act which he had signed the day before, he uses the word in the singular, J'ai promis de maintenir votre constitution. And, at a later date, when he still further emphasised the autonomy of the Grand Duchy, by creating for it a separate senate, February 9th, 21st, 1816, he, four times, refers to the constitution he had granted to that country seven years before, and on each occasion, in a Russian document, he used the words constitutia in the singular. Evidently, the added years had not brought to the monarch that matured expertise in the Russian constitution and the Russian language professed by Monsieur Auden. Finally, the description of the document in the formal recital with which it ends is challenged. In the Swedish it is called an act of assurance, for Schachrungsakt, and in the Russian an edict or diploma, Gramotta. But the patience of constitutionalists who have been waiting for proof of forgery will by this time be exhausted. They will care very little whether this document should be called Gramota, or Verschackungsakt, or neither or both. They will judge it by its contents and by its circumstances, and they will conclude that the Tsar meant, 
and that his new subjects understood him to mean to accept and to ratify the complete corpus of the constitutional and civil laws which the people of Finland had hitherto enjoyed under Swedish rule. Placing the two documents side by side, it is of course evident that their collation does little credit to the Tsar's clerical staff at his temporary palace and seat of the government in Borga. These four or five discrepancies between two documents of so much importance should not have been permitted to exist, but in view of his practice of varying the phraseology of his utterances, it is sufficiently obvious that they are due to the action of the monarch himself. When in Helsingfors recently, the writer endeavoured to discover the original drafts, which would have settled this point, but they are not in the National Archives, having been destroyed, it is believed, in the great fire at Orbo in 1827. But the drafts of many contemporary documents, and notably that of the speech delivered by the Tsar on the same day, and immediately after the taking of the oath by the estates, are still in existence, and they throw abundant light on Alexander's mode of composition. The draft of the speech, which is printed in full as delivered, on page 40, is in places so altered as to leave scarcely a line of the original. The substitution of habitant for sujet, which so alarms Monsieur Auden, in the act is here effected by the emperor himself, and among other alterations he substitutes nation for peuple, a variation which would have afforded Monsieur Auden scope for a volume if it had occurred between a Russian and a Swedish version of the speech. In the final paragraph, the phrases etre suprême and peuple bon et loyal are struck out in favour of etre tout puissant and nation respectable. Not that the former were disapproved of, but that they were reserved for use in the proclamation issued a week later. This habit of alteration is alone sufficient to account for the discrepancies. There are still two points left to those who would deny, in the face of events at Borgo, that Finland has a constitution. They say, in the first place, that the Tsar mentioned no specific laws in his act of assurance, and in the accompanying speeches and proclamations, and that therefore the two special statutes on which Finland relies as defining the powers of the sovereign and of the diet, respectively, were not meant by him to be binding. And in the second place, by way of comprehensive objection to everything, that Russia's relations with Finland are not governed by the proceedings of the Diet of Borga at all, but by the Treaty of Frederikshamen, by which, at a later date, Sweden renounced all claims on Finland, ceding it en tu propriété to Russia. If Alexander had mentioned some of the Swedish laws, and had thus tacitly excluded others, there would have been some point in the first of these objections. But, as he contents himself with including the whole body of law in one phrase, it is ridiculous to suggest that he meant to pick and choose among the constitutional statutes, above all, for the purpose of excluding two so recent and so important. It will be recollected that in the preliminary report on the Swedish constitution, made by His Majesty's direction, by his Finnish secretaries, Special attention was directed to the events of these two years, but not only had the Tsar knowledge in advance of the constitution of Sweden, he deliberately based his whole Finnish policy upon it. So long as Sprengtporten was governor in Orbo, there was no need to explain a matter so familiar and so obvious, 
But when, in 1810, Count Steinheil, a stranger, became governor, Alexander was at pains to draw up for his guidance a secret rescript in which he explained that his intention had not been to coerce the Finns, but to win them by treating them better than they had been treated by Sweden. My object, he said, in organising the situation in Finland has been to give the people a political existence so that they shall not regard themselves as subject to Russia, but as attached to her by their own evident interests, and for this reason not only their civil laws, but also their political laws, have been retained. What those political laws were is placed beyond doubt by the facts of the case. When Empress Elizabeth invited the Finns to place themselves under Russian protection, and promised to leave them their own constitution, with all the rights, privileges and liberties arising therefrom, she did not pledge herself to the statutes of 1772 and 1789, for the simple reason that these statutes were not in existence at the time. But she certainly pledged herself, if her offer had been accepted, to observe all the constitutional laws existing in Sweden in 1741. Similarly, when Catherine II made her offer to Jägerhorn, the Finnish conspirator, in 1788, any pledge made by her would have included the Act of 1772. Indeed, as we have seen in the minute of the State Council, the Act is expressly and by name referred to. And when Alexander made his solemn and repeated pledges in 1809, what fundamental statutes could he possibly have referred to but those of 1772 and 1789, as well known and as familiar to statesmen of the time as was the Reform Bill of 1830 to the politicians of the last generation? The minutes of the proceedings of the estates at the Diet of Borgo team with references to these statutes which, naturally, formed the starting point of the whole discussion, and Finnish writers have collected a continuous series of references to them in the official documents of the reigns of Alexander I, Nicholas, Alexander II, and Alexander III. Of these it will only be necessary to refer to one from each of the first three reigns by way of illustration. In 1811, Alexander I issued certain instructions to the Governor-General, which, when examined, were found to be irregular in one of their sections, which section the Emperor at once withdrew when it was pointed out to him that it was contrary to Section 8 of the Form and Government of 1772 and to Section 2 of the Act of Union and Security of 1789 respectively, which statutes are numbered among the fundamental laws which His Imperial Majesty, by his assurance to all the inhabitants of Finland, was on the 15th, 27th March, 1809, most graciously pleased to confirm and ratify. If Alexander I had not intended to confirm and ratify the Acts of 1772 and 1789, surely he would have said so in reply to such an appeal. Instead of that, he recognised its force and withdrew the offending paragraph. In 1826, Nicholas being on the throne, he came to the humane decision to suspend the death penalty in all ordinary cases, and in Finland he based his decree to that effect on the right of grace 
conferred on him by the fundamental laws. Now, the only fundamental laws which bear on this point are Article 9 of the Law of 1772 and Article 1 of the Law of 1789. It is scarcely necessary to refer to the reign of Alexander II, who so cordially accepted and carried out his obligations towards Finland, but one decree is worth citing out of many, as it shows the sovereign uniting the two acts for the protection of his legitimate rights. In sanctioning the law of the Diet in 1869, Alexander issued the following decree. Reserving for ourselves our rights and privileges as they are confirmed and assured in the form of government of August 21st, 1772, and in the Act of Union and Security of February 21st and April 3rd, 1789, which rights have not been formally changed in the aforesaid law of the Diet, we approve and confirm this law of the Diet as an irrevocable fundamental law, in faith whereof we have to this set our hand and seal. St. Petersburg, April 3rd, 15th, 1869. And M. Orden asks us to believe that the Tsars knew nothing of, did not confirm, and were not bound by the fundamental laws of 1772 and 1789? The objection that Finland must look for its constitutional rights, if there were any, within the four corners of the Treaty of Frederickshamen, need not detain us for long. That treaty was a compact between Russia and Sweden, in which Finland had no part. How, then, can anyone suggest that it abrogates the terms of an altogether separate and distinct compact made of their own free will, as the Emperor Alexander was never tired of repeating, between the Tsar and the Finlanders. Finland had already been united to Russia, and was in full enjoyment of its constitutional rights confirmed by its new sovereign. It was necessary for Russia and Sweden to make peace, and the relinquishment by Sweden of all claims on Finland was an essential first condition of that peace. But Sweden had, altogether independent of the Treaty of Frederickshamen, already forfeited all right to influence the destinies of Finland. The Swedish envoy, Count Stedink, fought hard on this point, and endeavoured to have a clause inserted, guaranteeing the religion and laws of Finland. But Count Romjansov maintained that the future of Finland was a matter of internal administration, and could not become the subject of diplomatic pledge. As between Russia and Sweden, this contention was absolutely correct, and Count Stedink had to content himself with a clause reciting that His Majesty, the Emperor of all the Russias, having already given the most manifest proofs of clemency and justice, with which he has resolved to govern the inhabitants of the provinces which he has acquired, by generously and of his own spontaneous act, assuring them the free exercise of their religion, rights, property, and privileges, his Swedish majesty considers himself thereby dispensed from performing the otherwise sacred duty of making reservations in the above respects in favour of his former subjects. In this clause there are expressions to which objection might be taken from the Finnish point of view by strict constitutionalists, just as to the similar phrases in the Tsar's circulars to the foreign powers, 
but it can only be repeated that these documents were drawn up not to define the relations of Russia and Finland, on which they had not the slightest influence, but to define relations between Russia, including Finland, and the rest of Europe. And as regards foreign powers, Finland has never had, nor claimed to have in any proper sense of the word, a separate existence. Constitutionally, she is an autonomous Grand Duchy, with the Tsar as Grand Duke. Diplomatically, she is incorporated in Russia, and can have no foreign relations. Count Ramjantsov was concerned simply with making two points clear. First, that Sweden should not then, and afterwards, interfere in Finnish affairs. And second, that the treaty did not confer Finland on Russia, but simply acknowledged that Finland was already rightfully under Russia's protection. As Count Romjantsov explained in reporting to the Emperor, Mon principe était de montrer votre majesté comme maître de Finlande avant le traité. And so Count Romjantsov and the Emperor combined to destroy in advance Monsieur Orden's point, and to establish the fact that relations between Russia and Finland did not spring from the treaty, but had been definitely fixed months before the treaty was concluded. If Monsieur Orden wishes to see how diplomacy expresses itself when a country is being handed over to another, or to several others, and its institutions defined by treaty, he should consult with the clause of the Act of Vienna dealing with Poland. Le duché de Varsovie est réuni à l'Empire de Russie. Il y sera lié irrévocablement par sa constitution pour être possédé par sa majesté l'empereur de toutes les Russies ses héritiers et successeurs à perpétuité. Sa majesté impériale se réserve de donner à cet état, jouissant d'une administration distincte, l'extension intérieure qu'elle jugera convenable. Elle prendra avec ses autres titres celui des arts rois des Pologne. Les Polonais, sujets respectifs de la Russie, de l'Autriche et de la Prusse, obtiendront une représentation et des institutions nationales. Congress Poland has not had a happy history. I am aware that some who have a right to speak with weight on affairs in Finland regret that the Grand Duchy did not at Frederickshamen receive some constitutional guarantee. In my opinion, nothing could, in the interests of Finland itself, have been more disastrous. Poland, in spite of a treaty to which all Europe was a party, has disappeared from the rank of states. Perhaps it is not too much to suggest that the mere fact of being a European protégé made Poland troublesome, and that Russia, fearing the curb, became unduly harsh and suspicious of outside interference. What would have been the inevitable result if Finland had had a paper right to protection from Sweden, protection not strong enough to help, but just strong enough to irritate? Can there be any doubt that under such circumstances Finland would have long ago shared the fate of Poland, and that, gloomy as the present situation may appear, the Grand Duchy would have been worse, not better, for the sham protection of an unworkable international guarantee. Those who think that too much attention has been given to the trivial and self-contradictory arguments and assertions of the Russian nationalist writers may be assured that these extraordinary misrepresentations and childish word-twistings have been persistently urged for years past, and have had deplorable effects even on what ought to be well-informed opinion in Russia. There need be no doubt that the present Tsar is anxious, like his predecessors, 
to act fairly and honestly to Finland, but the whole official atmosphere is so poisoned by lies that the Tsar, overwhelmed with work that is ever in arrear, is sometimes the last man in Russia to hear the truth, and the unifiers, who at present have the upper hand in church and state in Russia, are determined that, as regards Finland at any rate, the truth shall not be known if they can prevent it. End of section 4section 5 of finland and the czars 1809-1899 to by joseph robert fisher this librivox recording is in the public domain read by alistair chapter 5 the diet at work when alexander i returned to st petersburg after having so clearly and repeatedly emphasised the self-governing rights of Finland, he left the Diet to its novel labours at Borgor. It was not called upon to legislate in our English sense of the word. It had not to alter or reform the existing war, but rather taking the administration of the country as it had been carried on when Finland and Sweden were one. It had to bring that administration into conformity with the new order of things. To this end, the Emperor, in accordance with the Swedish constitutional practice, laid certain propositions before the Diet concerning the future affairs of the country and the best means to regulate them in a manner applicable to the new situation of Finland and to the circumstances in their different combinations. The Tsar's propositions to the Diet dealt with the future military organisation of the country, the revenue, the coinage and the formation of the Conseil de Régence or Government Council, a local body which, since 1816, has been called the Senate. This latter is one of Finland's peculiar institutions. It was, as will be explained later, modelled on the old Swedish Riksråd, or Council of State, and its combination of functions, advisory, executive and judicial, is probably unique. Several of the representatives of the different estates had been members of the previous Diets at Stockholm, and were thus able to guide their less experienced colleagues, and on the whole the debates went smoothly, committees being formed to take into consideration the various proposals. The Tsar himself carefully abstained from exercising any influence or pressure. I have allowed you, Alexander was able to say afterwards, perfect liberty in your deliberations. No influence, no authority except your own, has dared to cross the threshold of these doors. At the same time, there was, naturally, continuous correspondence between the Secretary for Finland in St. Petersburg and the Governor-General as to the progress of affairs and as to the date at which it would be convenient to close the Diet. It is not necessary to follow these deliberations which lasted from March till July. It is, however, to be remembered, in view of future events, that the question which the Emperor places in the very front of the programme of the Diet, that of military organisation, is one which the War Office, in St. Petersburg, now claims to control, on the ground that its intimate connection with the general interests of the Empire forbids that it should be exclusively treated and decided by the institutions of the Grand Duchy. 
The legislation of Alexander II supplies, as we still see, ample material for demolishing this novel pretension, but it is satisfactory to notice that on every point raised by the present war minister, Alexander I is on the side of the Finns and against the new order of Russian officials. The original draft of his propositions to the Diet is very interesting as throwing light on this point. There is no question of Finnish mistranslation, yet it would be difficult to imagine a more absolute justification for the attitude on the military question of the extraordinary Diet of 1899 than that provided in advance by Alexander himself. Incidentally, it may be added, the Emperor disposes of the argument of those who pretend that the Borgodiet was simply an oath-taking body called to give allegiance once for all to Russia and then to disappear. The estates are invited to take into their mature consideration a matter so important for the public economy and to provide, until the next Diet, ways and means of carrying out the necessary changes. Finnish soldiers are to be placed only under Finnish officers and are not to be employed out of Finland, and nothing contrary to Finnish law is to be done in this matter, either now or in the future. Throughout the whole document, there is not a shadow of suggestion that Russian interests, as apart from Finnish, are at issue. The question is posed as one concerning Finland and its Grand Duke. The Emperor's words in the original French draft are, Sa Majesté Impériale, persuadée que les braves Finnois ne seront pas les derniers de se ranger sous les drapeaux de l'honneur dans toutes les occasions où la défense de leur patrie les y appelle, demande l'avis mûr des États de quelle manière ils croient que la défense du pays par les combattants nationaux peut à l'avenir être organisée. À l'Assemblée prochaine des États, Sa Majesté Impériale admettra cette manière la délibération des États. Sa Majesté impériale, ne voulant pas employer ses troupes hors les frontières de la Finlande, veut aussi bien permettre qu'ils seront sous la discipline pratiquée auparavant dans le pays et sous les commandements des officiers de leur propre nation. En attendant, Sa Majesté prendra sans délai des mesures pour faire lever les régiments en Finlande auxquels personne ne sera engagé sans son consentement libre excepté ceux qui, en conséquence des lois, sont sujets d'être enrôlés de manière que des conscriptions militaires ou autres moyens à cet égard contraires aux lois ne seront point employés ni présentement ni à l'avenir. Sa Majesté impériale invite les États de prendre à mieux délibération cet objet si important tant pour l'économie publique que pour l'intérêt individuel et d'établir jusqu'à la prochaine diète un juste milieu de ce qu'il faut pour fournir à l'État des moyens suffisants, etc. The Diet having finished its deliberations, the Tsar returned to Borogo and closed its sittings on July 7th, 19th, 1809. In a speech which is one of the most vigorous and plain spoken of all his utterances, he repeatedly refers to Finland as a nation governed by its own laws vehemently repudiates all idea of foreign influence of any sort being brought to bear on its decisions, and shows no knowledge whatever of those recently invented legislative questions in regard to Finland, which, on account of their intimate connection with the general interests of the empire,
cannot be exclusively treated and decided by the institutions of the Grand Duchy, and which are therefore to be finally decided in St. Petersburg by Russian laws and Russian officials. His words were as follows. En réunissant les États de la Finlande en une diète générale, j'ai voulu connaître les désirs et les sentiments de la nation sur ses véritables intérêts. J'appelais votre attention sur les objets les plus importants à votre prospérité, me reposant entièrement sur la loyauté de votre caractère, fort d'ailleurs de la pureté de mes intentions. J'ai laissé à votre délibération une parfaite liberté. Aucune influence, aucune autorité étrangère à la vôtre n'ose affranchir le seuil de ses portes. J'ai veillé sur l'indépendance de vos opinions. Absent, je m'ai trouvé au milieu de vous par le vœu que je ne cessais de faire pour le succès de vos travaux. Les avis que vous venez d'émettre portent le caractère de la sagesse et de l'amour de la patrie. Je les prendrai en considération d'un œuvre importante que je médite pour votre prospérité. Vos travaux cessent dès ce moment, mais en vous séparant, vous avez des devoirs essentiels à remplir. Portez dans le sein de vos provinces, imprimez dans l'esprit de vos compatriotes la même confiance qui a présidé ici à vos délibérations. Inspirez-leur la même conviction, la même assurance sur les objets les plus importants à votre existence politique, le maintien de vos lois, la sûreté personnelle, le respect inviolable à vos propriétés. Ce peuple brave et loyal bénira la Providence qui a amené l'ordre des choses actuelles. Placé désormais au rang des nations, sous l'empire de ses lois, il ne se ressouviendra de la domination passée que pour cultiver des rapports d'amitié lorsqu'ils seront rétablis par la paix. Et moi, j'aurai recueilli le plus grand fruit de mes soins quand je verrai cette nation, tranquille au dehors, libre dans l'intérieur se livrant sous la production des lois et des bonnes mœurs à l'agriculture et à l'industrie, par l'effet même de sa prospérité, rendre justice à mes intentions et bénir ses destinées. Most of the anti-Finnish writers seem to fight shy of this speech, so clear in its assertion of Finnish nationality and Finnish law. But some of them have fastened on the third paragraph, and have endeavoured to extract comfort from the fact that the Tsar speaks of the avis and not of the decision of the estates. Here again, the difficulty arises simply from the impossibility in which the writers seem to find themselves of comprehending constitutional procedure. They imagine that a parliament, whether composed of four estates, as in Finland, or of three estates, as in England, claims a power of legislation apart from the sovereign, and that there is no sovereignty in constitutional countries. A glance at the preliminary recital of any British Act of Parliament would have prevented them from falling into this blunder. The House of Commons is a very powerful body, but it has no power to make a law. Every law in England is enacted by the Queen's Most Excellent Majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Lords Spiritual and Temporal and Commons in this present Parliament assembled. Advice. Avis. The very word is used in constitutional England today that was used by the Emperor Grand Duke in Finland 90 years ago. It is true that the comparison goes no further, 
In England, the assent of the sovereign is given in the presence of the Parliament itself, and for an English sovereign to declare in proroguing Parliament that he would take into consideration the bills passed by the two houses would, like the formula, le roi se visera, be equivalent to a veto. But that was not so in Sweden. There it was not customary for the king to sanction laws at the end of the session, but at some later date, and, even if the first finished it, had been called on to consider formal proposals for the new laws, which it was not, and if the Emperor Grand Duke had intended to sanction and promulgate those proposals, as adopted, the Diet would still, according to Swedish procedure, have been dissolved without the Tsar's assent being signified to those laws. Even under Alexander II, whose unquestionably constitutional action is a cause of bitter regret to the Russian nationalists, this was the course pursued. The law of the Diet, for example, which was passed by the Estates in 1867, was not adopted and promulgated until 1869, and the military service law passed in 1877 was only promulgated by imperial decree the following year. From our modern English point of view, the Borger Diet represents Parliament in a comparatively undeveloped form, but the essential principle was there. It was not Alexander's business to create a brand new modern parliament for Finland. He had to recognise and act with a local body modelled on Swedish parliamentary institutions, as they existed at that time, and this he faithfully did. The Swedish Diet was, historically, not a development of the old provincial folktings, which were really legislative, but of the King's Council, which was primarily advisory, and its terminology bore traces of this origin even after it had become the supreme council of the nation. The executive powers of the Swedish kings outside or alongside the law were very considerable, and those powers the Tsars as Grand Dukes of Finland have inherited, but even in matters which the king could himself decide without the consent of the estates, it was customary, although by no means an invariable practice, to consult the Diet, and the word ulotande, avi, appears to have been used for the response of the Diet in both cases. In using the word Alexander, so far from making any constitutional reservation, was simply following the Swedish practice as explained to him in advance by the Finnish secretary. The King said Rabinder in his memorial, has the right to summon the estate to a diet, where he submits to them the matters on which he wishes their advice. Avi. The Swedish practice also explains the circumstances alleged against Alexander's diet, that it was never again summoned, and that his successor, Nicholas, also ruled without a diet. But the old Swedish diet had never secured that control over the annual revenue to which we have so long been accustomed. The king could impose no new taxes, but a tax once legally imposed was levied from year to year until repealed. Annual parliaments had never been the rule. When fresh taxation was necessary, or new laws called for, the king summoned a diet, but this was a matter within his own discretion as to time. 
It was most undesirable and inconvenient for Finland to have to go for half a century without a diet, but it was not a violation of the Constitution. To show that it was not the deliberate intention of Alexander I to do away with the diet as soon as he had secured from it a recognition of his sovereignty, it is sufficient to refer to the numerous instances in which he and his successor referred to the matter, as we have seen Alexander in his first business communication to the Diet speaks only of carrying on certain financial arrangements, jusqu'à la prochaine Diet, and in 1816 and 1817 he still talks of a coming Diet, but it never came. The early enthusiasm for progress and constitutional government yielded to gloomy mysticism and reaction. Madame de Stael and the bright hopes of youth were replaced by Frau von Krudne and the Book of Daniel, and the Tsar who had once led all Europe ended obscurely at Taganrog as one of the men who had just missed being great. His successor, Nicholas, had no constitutional weaknesses, but he respected the settlement of 1809, and twice, in 1826 and 1827, we find him explaining as reasons for not calling a diet, the circumstances and the pressure of the cares of state. The cares did not diminish, and the unsolved riddle of Russian government crushed Nicholas as it had crushed his brother. As it was to crush his son and grandson, they still talk of him in Helsingfors, of the stately figure of the earlier visits, the very embodiment of imperial dignity and strength, and then of the prematurely worn and broken-hearted man who passed through after the ground on which he had built had begun to give way beneath his feet at Sebastopol. The Sphinx had claimed another victim. End of section 5Section 6 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899, by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 6. The New Order in Finland. The reorganisation of the machinery of government in accordance with the new situation in Finland was naturally a matter of time and experiment. Even before the Diet had finished its labours, Sprengporten, whose temper did not improve with age, had come to loggerheads with both Speransky on the one side and with the Finlanders on the other, and was permitted to resign, General Barclay de Tolly being appointed in his place. But the great commander whom Scotland had given to Russia was urgently needed in St. Petersburg, where preparations were going on in view of the inevitable quarrel with Napoleon, and in 1810 he was succeeded as Governor-General of Finland by General Steinheil, immediately under the Governor, and acting, in part at least, as his ministers, came the Government Council, the first council of 14 members being elected by the Diet itself. Half the members were assigned to the Department of Justice, forming, in fact, the Supreme Court of the Grand Duchy, the others constituted the Department of Economy, being placed in charge of the different branches of the administration. This council, now known as the Imperial Senate of Finland, 
had been decided upon as the most convenient form of government and the most conformable to Swedish usage by a committee chosen by the emperor for the purpose. And with the practical spirit which characterised all the proceedings of that eventful period, the original scheme was, with a few alterations, accepted by the Diet and approved by the Tsar. The form of government then adopted has since, with a few unimportant modifications, continued to work smoothly and efficiently. In St. Petersburg, Finnish affairs were at first, as we have seen, entrusted to Speransky, a Russian official, as secretary for Finland. But ultimately, towards the end of 1811, a regular Finnish secretariat was erected with a committee of Finlanders and a minister secretary of state, whose duty it was to report to the Tsar on all matters affecting him as Grand Duke of Finland. This committee for Finnish affairs might seem superfluous, for Finland already had its fully constituted government in Orbo, but Alexander meditated a division of labour. By the constitution there were certain things that had to be done through the Diet, others which only required the executive decree of the Grand Duke. It was for advice respecting this latter class of cases that Alexander established the committee. The first section of instructions is as follows. The Committee for Finnish Affairs is established for the revision and preparation of cases, which in accordance with the fundamental laws and the statutes for the Government Council of Finland have to be decided by the Sovereign. In view of the suggestion that Alexander was lured into the adoption of numerous unautocratic measures at this period by the trickery or treachery of the Finlanders, it is worth repeating that this idea of concentrating Finnish affairs in St. Petersburg into the hands of one minister, having under him a special committee, was the Tsar's own. The only alteration he made in the original draft of the scheme for the administration of Finnish affairs by a government council was in Article 2, which at first ran as follows. Le gouverneur général présentera par les ministres toutes les affaires qui sont de leur ressort et recevra par la même voie les ordres suprêmes de son souverain. This article was struck out by the emperor with his own hand, with the added note. Cet article est accepté. Toutes les représentations seront faites directement en moi. It is pretty obvious that if Finnish affairs had had at every turn to run the gauntlet of a series of Russian ministries, there would have been small chance of anything ever being done, whilst the whole spirit of Finnish law and Finnish constitutionalism would speedily have disappeared. In spite of pledges, Finland would by degrees have drifted insensibly into the position of a Russian province. Thanks partly to its constitution, and partly, no doubt, to the two able men who occupied the office in succession, during three reigns, the Finnish Secretariat has proved the best bulwark of the Finnish constitution, and, to the chagrin of the anti-Finnish writers, the Tsar himself was its originator. Alexander lost no time in sanctioning the scheme adopted by the Diet, and in doing so, he supplies us with what appears to be the first instance of the means by which, under his rule, a navit of the Diet became law. The wording of the enacting paragraph of the decree was as follows. Ayant entendu les avis des États et considérant qu'une administration générale revêtue d'une autorité suffisante pour le maintien des lois et basée sur des principes libéraux ne manquera pas d'exercer les plus salutaires influences sur le bien-être de l'État, 
Nous avons décrété et décrétons ce qui suit. Etc. Perhaps the desire to have the new institutions of Finland in full working order with the unanimous consent of the people before the treaty of peace with Sweden came to be signed had something to do with the smoothness with which this business went through. At any rate, the council was constituted at Orbor, August 6th, 18th, and on August 28th, September 9th, Count Romjansov was able to write from Frederickshamen that he had silenced the demand trop reiteré of Count Stedding by presenting the accomplished fact of the Tsar as Maître de Finland le Ventrité. This same decree of the Emperor is notable as containing another of those answers by anticipation to the later objectors of which Alexander's utterances are so full. In it he speaks of his new subjects, not as subjects, not even as habitants, but as citoyens de la Finlande, and in order, apparently, to prevent the possibility of mistaking the new state for a Russian province, he designates the several governmental districts of the Grand Duchy as provincial administrations, provinces of which the central point, the Supreme Tribunal, was to be found, not in Russia, but in Finland. In explaining the necessity for the government council, Alexander says, Parmi les moyens d'assurer la prospérité de la Finlande, l'établissement d'une administration générale nous a paru d'une nécessité urgente. Il importait au bien-être de l'État que les administrations provinciales eussent un point central et un tribunal suprême qui pût les diriger, maintenir l'unité des principes, assurer la force et l'action de la loi, veiller à la distribution de la justice et imprimer un mouvement salutaire à la propagation des lumières et au progrès de l'industrie. Needless to say, the writers in the Russian press shut their eyes when they come within sight of declarations like this, which make their assertion that Finland is merely a Russian province look so foolish. But that is a small matter to writers who can ignore even the explicit statement of Speransky, who, as Secretary of State to the Tsar, knew the imperial mind better than any other. Finland is a state, Gosudastva, and not a province, Gabernia. There was only one more thing that Alexander could do to prove, by deeds as well as words, the unity and autonomy of Finland as a state, and he did it. It will be recollected that under Peter the Great and his daughter Elizabeth, certain portions of conquered Swedish territory, including the fortress of Viborg, had been retained and annexed by Russia and governed as a Russian province. There was, therefore, a simple expedient before Alexander if he proposed to govern Finland as a province. He had only to assimilate its administration to that already at work in the old Finnish province of Viborg, and the thing was done. There could have been no more talk of Finland as an autonomous state. What he did was precisely the reverse. Alexander resolved to restore Viborg to Finland and to the constitutional government it had so long been deprived of, so that the self-governing Grand Duchy should resume its old boundaries as before the Treaty of Nystad in 1721. In the act completing this voluntary transfer of Russian territory to Finland, on December 11, 1811, Alexander revives the judicial and ecclesiastical authority of Orbo over Viborg. And in a later decree, issued on the eve of the reunion, 
which was fixed for New Year's Day 1812, he provides for Viborg's constitutional representation in the Diet as follows. In the province of Viborg, the right of the estates to send representatives to the Diet is to be decided in accordance with the prescriptions of the constitution of the country. And in the original draft of this document, the emperor is seen in another place to have made alterations in favour of Finland. The secretary had written in the original, Ayant en vertu de notre manifeste du 11 décembre 1811, reni le gouvernement de Vibourg au grand-duché de Finlande, incorporé à notre empire. But the emperor, with his own hand, struck out the words, incorporé à notre empire. Finland was a state united to Russia, not a province incorporated in it. Yet another point. During the 80 years of Russian rule, the province of Viborg had lost much of its Finnish character. Russian proprietors had settled in the country and brought their serfs with them. So complete was the difference at that date between Russian and Finnish law that when Viborg was restored to the Grand Duchy, these serfs became ipso facto free. Finland was governed by its own laws, and a suggestive distinction between Russian administration and Finnish was illustrated by the fact that whereas Russia had employed 217 officials of various degrees to rule this little province. The number was at once reduced by Finland to 89. The military organization of the Grand Duchy was also called for settlement. On this matter, the emperor, as we have seen, demanded the Avimur of the estates, and two manifestos were devoted to it, bearing the date March 15th, 27th, and July 20th, August 1st, 1810. The arrangements then decided upon have in themselves no present importance, but in view of the recently invented doctrine of the general interests of the empire, which are supposed to justify the Russian war office in deciding Finnish military questions without regard to the opinions of the Diet, it is necessary to observe the principle upon which, in accordance with his constitutional pledges, Alexander acted. In the first document, he reiterated as usual that he governed Finland as a free nation in the enjoyment of the rights guaranteed it by its constitution, as a country whose inhabitants had, of their own free will, de leur plein gré, through their representatives, taken an oath of fealty to him. He next pointed to his acts during the past years as justifying the confidence reposed in him, Tous les actes, he declared, émanés jusqu'ici pour l'administration intérieure de ce pays ne sont qu'une suite et une application de ce principe. Le maintien de la religion et des lois, la réunion de la diète, la formation du conseil de régence au sein de la nation, la conservation intacte de l'ordre judiciaire et administratif, en sont des preuves qui doivent assurer à la nation finnoise les droits de son existence politique. After this introduction, the emperor came to the point at which he was aiming, which was that in military matters, also it was the laws of Finland and not those of Russia that should prevail. Parmi les institutions qui ont dû fixer toute notre attention, l'organisation de la force militaire est une des plus importantes. Ayant résolu de ne rien introduire qui ne soit conforme aux lois existantes, 
nous sommes décidés à conserver en Finlande l'organisation militaire telle qu'elle a existé avant ce temps, en l'adaptant davantage aux moyens du pays et au bien-être de ses habitants. And in the further manifesto of July, dealing with the method of assessment for meeting the expenses of the new military force, he expressly explained that he had adopted that agreed upon to by the committee of the Diet as most conformable to the existing laws and usages, and as the best proportion to the estimate of necessary expenses drawn up for the year by the government council. The general basis for the government of the country being thus fixed, Finland drops into the background for a time. The country had suffered terribly from successive devastations, the population had fallen to little over 800,000, even with the addition of Viborg. It only amounted to a million, and agriculture, industry, and the general welfare of the people were naturally in a very backward state. It was not till 1821 that the emperor, in one of his visits to the country, fixed upon Tamerfors, with its enormous water power, as the spot for the future manufacturing capital of the Grand Duchy, his foresight being fully justified by the present prosperity of the Manchester of Finland, with its annual output to the amount of over 20 million marks. But this was all in the future. What Finland then required was rest and peace, and this she happily enjoyed even during the stirring events, which soon called on Alexander to exert every effort for the maintenance of the very existence of his empire. The friendship of Tilsit and Erfurt had long since given way to open enmity between Napoleon and Alexander. Napoleon ruled Europe to the Baltic and the Adriatic. Austria and Prussia were his vassals. Only in one remote corner of Portugal, where Wellington, half abandoned by his country, held grimly to the lines of Torres Vedras, and bided his time, was there any resistance to his supremacy in the West. But even in the East there must be no rival. Napoleon's arrogance since the birth of the King of Rome had developed into something hardly distinguishable from insanity, and an invasion of Russia was only a question of time. Alexander strained every nerve to meet the threatened danger, but as usual the Russian army in the field bore little resemblance to that which had existed on paper in the St. Petersburg War Office, and later on, when the time came to strike and Napoleon stood ready with Frenchmen, Poles, Bavarians, Italians, Austrians and Prussians under his standards to the number of nearly 500,000 men, Alexander could count up barely 200,000. The situation was serious. Moscow could perhaps be defended, but if the defence of St. Petersburg had also to be undertaken, Alexander was lost and it was known that Napoleon's plan was to enlist Sweden against Russia by the promise of the restoration of Finland, and so to weaken and divide the Russian forces. But here the Tsar's good work in Finland brought its own reward. On April 3rd, 15th, 1812, he tested the disposition of the people by the issue of a manifesto. He contrasted the peace and progress enjoyed by Finland under his rule with the anxiety and dread from which the rest of Europe suffered, while other states have been convulsed by internal strife and disturbances, or have suffered under foreign oppression, you have, under the shelter of your laws, 
enjoyed the blessings of peace and freedom. The future promises you the same blessings. The efforts of your government have only this aim. Your country is the only one which, secured in the possession of its ancient rights by the very conquest, has entered under foreign rule without encountering aught but the repeated benefits enjoyed by its inhabitants. The answer was unmistakable. Finland was loyal to its benefactor. Later in the summer, after Napoleon had crossed the Nyman with 450,000 men, Alexander had a personal interview at Orbo with Charles John Bernadotte, Napoleon's former marshal, now virtual regent of Sweden, and persuaded him to form an alliance against his old chief and to renounce all claims on Finland, Norway being promised to Sweden as compensation. Sweden also made a treaty with England, and Finland, so far from requiring an army to hold it down, and to protect St. Petersburg, raised three regiments of rifles, which did garrison duty in the Russian capital, whilst all the local Russian troops, under the command of the Governor-General, Count Steinheil, were free to march against Napoleon. Is there another instance in history of a conqueror having in less than four years so completely gained the affection and the confidence of his new subjects? It was a result equally creditable to Alexander and to Finland. When the strain was over and Alexander had returned from Leipzig and Paris and Vienna as the head of the Holy Alliance and the most brilliant and powerful sovereign in Christendom, Russia and its ruler might well have hoped they had definitely emerged from the half-savage and Asiatic stage of the Pauls and the Peters and entered the European family. But there was nothing but disappointment and embitterment in store for the kindly and truth-loving Tsar. He had no heir. None of his plans seemed to succeed. Conspiracy began to show its head in Poland and in Russia, and the prince, who had begun as an enthusiast for the French Revolution and a theoretical republican, ended in blind, panic-stricken reaction and repression. But Finland, regardless of the conspiracy and reaction across the frontier, remained after the war as before it, safe under the shelter of its own laws and secure in the possession of its ancient rights. Once more, before the darkness closes in, we see the Tsar, all his hopes and plans for Russia thwarted and tangled, turning with a touch of his old buoyancy to Finland, taking advantage of the trifling change involved in the alteration of the name of the governing council. Alexander, for himself and his successors, summed up and reiterated his pledges to the Grand Duchy. The proclamation of February 9th, 21st, 1816, is one of the most definite and comprehensive of the whole series, the only omission to be noticed being that of any reference to the calling of the Diet. But seeing that we are now in full reaction, and that free parliaments are in danger all Europe over, that is scarcely to be wondered at. Even England, under Lord Castlereagh, is working up for Peterloo, the Six Acts, and the Cato Street Conspiracy. But the separate constitution and the supreme government of Finland 
are declared to be safe, and Monsieur Orden will observe that, writing in Russian, and far away from Borgo, and the influence of the deceitful Finns, the Emperor repeatedly uses the word constitution, and uses it in the singular, constitutia. This is the voluntary declaration made by the Tsar to Finland, seven years after his original act of assurance. Since the union of the Grand Duchy with our empire, the prosperity of that country has always proved one of the dearest objects of our attention and care. We have therefore, at every opportunity, endeavoured by measures directed towards the common good, to obtain from our Finnish subjects that fidelity and devotion which we, as the authority placed over them by providence, had a right to demand, and of which, as we acknowledge with satisfaction, we have received so many unmistakable proofs. Assured that the Constitution and the laws which, in conformity with the character, the customs, and the civilization of the Finnish people, have through a long series of years formed the basis of their civil liberty and peace, could not, without danger, be limited or altered. We, from the first hour of our sovereignty over the country, not only confirmed in the most solemn fashion the Constitution and the laws, together with the liberties and rights of every Finnish citizen arising therefrom, but also after due consideration, together with the assembled estates of the country, we decreed a special government, composed of Finnish men, under the name of the Government Council, which has till now carried on in our name the civil administration of the country, acting also as the final court of appeal, independent of every power but that of the laws, including those which we, as regent, exercise in conformity with the same. By such means we have made clear the principles which have guided us, and shall continue to guide us, in dealing with our Finnish subjects and have also confirmed for all time the assurance of a separate constitution for the country under our sceptre and that of our successors. And now, having brought to a happy conclusion, together with the powers allied to us, and with the help of the Almighty, matters affecting the safety of our empire and the tranquillity of Europe, and having found a long-desired opportunity to devote our energies to the internal affairs of our empire, and to those relating especially to Finland, without hindrance from foreign cares, we find it convenient, in order to mark more clearly our intention with regard to the organization of the above-named local administration of the country, and its immediate relation to our person, to confer upon it, in conformity 
with the denomination of the highest departments of government in our empire, and in the kingdom of Poland, recently united to it, the name of our senate for Finland, without change, however, in its present organization, and still less in the constitution and laws by us ratified for Finland, which we, in all points, hereby further confirm. We, at the same time, most sincerely promise that the members of this our Finnish Senate shall in the future, as in the past, be chosen solely from among native or naturalised Finnish citizens, and accordingly we order and command all our Finnish subjects, and all whom it may concern, to yield obedience to all such ordinances as may be in our name and by our authority, be decreed by our former government council for Finland, under its future name of Imperial Senate. Three years later, Finland had an opportunity of personally displaying its gratitude to Alexander I. He visited the country in the autumn of 1819, and seemed to find, as did a later Alexander, consolation for the trials and disappointments of St. Petersburg amid the simple, law-abiding population of the Grand Duchy. He travelled many hundreds of miles by land and water, visiting lakes, rivers and cataracts, displaying everywhere, says a Finnish writer, the most heart-winning benevolence, and receiving in return every possible mark of unfeigned enthusiasm and affection. At Orbo he saw the last glories of that city as capital of Finland, and at Helsingfors he was able to superintend the first preparations for the transfer to the new capital of the various public bodies. The only approach to friction between Alexander and the Finlanders occurred in the closing years of his reign, when, on the death of Count Steinheil in 1823, the office of Governor-General was, for the first time, filled by a Russian soldier knowing little of the conditions under which he was to rule. The first governor had been a Finlander, the second, General Barclay de Tolly, was of Scottish origin, and in any case was in civil matters governor only in name. Count Steinheil was Athonian, and able to comprehend the position of the Baltic races, but Count Savreski sought to manage the Grand Duchy as he would manage a brigade. He began by drawing up a series of ordinances for which he obtained the imperial authorization without the necessary intervention of the Finnish authorities. The situation was, in fact, closely analogous to that of February 1899, when the manifesto and the new statutes were irregularly forwarded to the Senate. But Alexander, although far gone in reaction, was still open to remonstrance from Finland. The Senate refused to promulgate five decrees to which the imperial signature had thus been attached in violation of the Constitution, and drew up instead a unanimous protest in which the refusal was justified on the ground of the governor's forgetfulness of ratified forms. Alexander, mindful of his pledges, saw that the mistake was rectified, and the governor was required in future to present his reports 
through the proper constitutional channels. End of section 6